from the studios of KZSU at Stanford University. This is What Would Your Mother Say? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Susan Morris. With me in the studio tonight are two moms, Susan Esterly and Jan Thompson, and Stanford students Sam, Paul, Lauren, and Tina. Lauren Newman is back from a quarter at Oxford University, and Tina is a brand-new student to our panel. Welcome. We have a full show lined up for you tonight, a look at celebrities and what is it about our culture that makes them so popular, and ideas on how to get along with parents. Also, a new segment, the 60-second story about a mom. We begin with a look at the allure of addiction. A recent study reported that nearly half of America's 5.4 million full-time college students abuse drugs or drink alcohol on binges at least once a month. Our guest today did what those millions of students are doing, experimenting with drugs. But Nick Sheff uh, started his experimentation in high school, and it quickly turned into a downward spiral into hardcore addiction. Today, 20, in his early 20s and in recovery, Nick has written a harrowing account of his addiction in his first book, Tweak. It's good to hear you. have you on with us. I am sitting here with my panel of Stanford students and two moms. I, what, what I read, and it talks about how you need pills and weed and vials of liquid acid, comes very, very early in your book, and it gets much worse before you get clean. How hard was it for you to write about this and to remember that situation or feelings? Um, it, I mean, it, it was hard. There were definitely moments, you know, where um, I had to stop writing and, you know, get up and take my dog for a walk or, you know, just try to uh, get out of, you know, those memories of, of that world. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I feel like it was, um, I don't know, it was super cleansing, you know. It was like this... Um, such a relief, you know, to just get it all out and, and not have to keep these secrets anymore and to sort of process it through writing and, and through opening up so much. That's very interesting. I was going to ask you if if um, you write with such, I don't want to say deliciousness, but I can almost taste some of those drugs. And I wondered if at any point you were swept up once again in the allure of the addiction or the drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent, but it was also, um, you know, I mean, I, I think that one thing that is, is, well, at least that, you know, is, is true of my experience and I think is, is I hope is true of, of you know, my, my writing is that it does, you know, reflect, you know, that it was, it felt really good for a short amount of time, but it was also, you know, really, really painful. And I was, you know, covering up all these feelings inside of me of, of um, you know, self-hatred and, insecurity and and fear and doubt and so you know even when it maybe seemed you know romantic or something for a second you know it, it really was um just a, a covering for for this incredible pain that was sort of raging inside of me sometimes when when an addict describes the deprivation or the terrible things that they do and they don't clean or wash for weeks and stuff you wonder how how could someone live like that can you i mean this is a typical question that addicts are asked or that people ask about them but can you explain i mean how could you middle-class kid talented living in marin county and go from that to living on the streets and being a prostitute and you know yeah yeah i mean i guess the thing is is that i was really out of control you know and and that's the thing i think that is so 
confusing about drug addiction. I mean, it's confusing to me still, you know, and I've been dealing with this thing for, you know, seven years or whatever, but it, you know, it's, it, it, it's really, I mean, obviously I never wanted to become a drug addict. Obviously I didn't, you know, when I was a little kid, that wasn't my aspiration in, in life. So, you know, when I found that, you know, when I started taking these substances and my body had this reaction to them that I literally, you know, couldn't stop, you know, it was really scary and really overwhelming. But um, the fact remained that, you know, I, I couldn't stop. And so, you know, uh, there, I mean, I, I think that it is very confusing. I know my girlfriend always is like, you know, why didn't you just stop? You know, she gets so frustrated with me. And, and you know, if I could have, I, I would have. But there is just this thing in my body that when, you know, I take a substance into my body, it's like this hunger opens up inside me and, and I need more, you know, and, and I'm willing to do anything, you know, to, to keep getting high. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Sam, and I'm a student panelist here. I'm curious what substance or substances messed you up the worst, and also what really inspired you to get clean? Um, I guess, I mean, you know, crystal meth for me was, I think, the thing that, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I always heard, you know, don't ever do heroin, because if you try heroin one time, you know, you'll get instantly addicted to it or, or whatever. And, was that and, the case? Um, well, for me, I, I was scared of heroin so I I was I didn't try it for you know for a long time and no when I tried heroin it, it didn't do it for me it wasn't like that you know that um, the missing piece or whatever you know crystal meth for me was the thing that when I tried it I think you know I did one line of it and instantly uh, I would say that I was addicted to it I mean it was the feeling that I'd been looking for my whole life and it just felt like it completed me or, or whatever so you know, I think the first time I did it, you know, I wanted to never stop doing it. And, um, I mean, I think that was the drug also that made me the most sort of crazy and, and delusional and uh, aggressive. And, and, you know, that was really, once I started doing Crystal was when I started, you know, stealing from my family and, and um, doing all these sort of incomprehensible, you know, things that I did. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, for me, for my brain chemistry, you know, crystal meth was the thing that, that you know, was the fit, you know, for me. And, and for other people, it is heroin, but I didn't have that experience with heroin. Um, well, in terms of well, uh, what... I'm sorry, Sam, what was the other question you had? Oh, yeah, I was just curious, uh, what was the biggest factor in just in the epiphany of knowing that you had to get straight? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that it, maybe it was my uh, the proximity of to death or something that I finally reached um, when I was in the hospital for the last time um, I uh, was detoxing off of all the drugs and I guess that was really when the reality of, of how close I was to dying you know really hit home and I, I remember a nurse coming in and taking my blood pressure and it was like you know ridiculously low like 60 over something and and you know I mean I could barely uh, get up, you know, and I, I really knew at that moment that, that if I didn't make a decision to change my life around, I was going to die, and that, it wasn't that would romantic. Wake, that would wake you up, right? Yes, <laughs> Lauren, exactly. has a, Lauren has a question. Yeah, this is another yeah. student panelist, but I'm curious if there were sort of precursors uh, to, to this drug addiction in, in your life. Did you have what people would call an addictive personality previous to using drugs? Um, yeah, Definitely, I would say definitely. I mean, especially, you know, in hindsight or whatever. Uh, you know, I think that there was this hole inside of me and this pain and stuff. And, and I think my biggest fear in, in the whole world was that I would look 
inside of myself and and see who I was at my core or whatever and realize that I was just this disgusting, you know, ugly, you know, terrible person. And so I wanted to do everything in my power to never have to look at myself and to run away from from ever, you know, discovering who I was. So, yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, when I was younger, you know, I started surfing and I surfed, you know, compulsively. I mean, I was constantly, and I watched movies compulsively. I, I was sort of constantly looking for something to take me away from, from myself. And, you know, drugs just did it better than anything else had before. This is Jan, and I'm one of the moms. And speaking for all mothers, can you can you give any suggestions for what mothers and fathers can do when they have a child that they see is going down this path and, and what the best thing we could do to bring them back? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's really such a hard question. I, I, I feel like, I mean, as a kid, you know, the last person I was ever going to listen to was, was my parents, you know, so it's sort of, it's difficult because, you know, I mean, right, the thing for me was that I, I, I did have all this pain inside me, and, you know, it started off with just smoking pot for me, and, and I was, um, when I smoked pot, you know, it, it made me feel better, you know, it made me more able to, like, live in the world or whatever, it was like medicine for me, um, you know, I really wish that at that moment I could have, instead of just keep doing drugs, you know, could have just, like, stopped and looked at myself and been like, what is going on inside of me, like, what is the pain there? that I'm having to run away from. So what and, do parents do when they when they see, I mean, is there anything? In a yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, I would hope that they, you know, I would encourage parents maybe to, you know, to try to push their kids to take a look at themselves and really, you know, maybe recognize, you know, that there is some pain there that they're covering up and maybe, you know, get help dealing with it. But I think that more powerful than, than um, a parent getting involved is maybe, you know, I don't know, finding someone that is, you know, a peer or, you know, maybe a little older that, um, you know, could talk to, um, you know, your your kid about what's going on with them. Because, I mean, for me, those were the people that I listened to were, were, you know, people who were maybe a little older than me, who, you know, I had respected and looked up to. And when they started telling me that, you know, I was really screwing up my life, I mean, it didn't necessarily make me stop, but it definitely was a wake-up call for sure. That's great. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Hi, Nick. It's uh, Susan. I'm another mom, and I'm I'm wondering if it feels like for you this life path was inevitable, that there was nothing that could have prevented you from making the choices you ended up making to get, take you I, to this I feel point. like that definitely to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, it's like I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, there's nothing that I can pinpoint or blame or anything to, to, you know, say, you know, this is why I became a drug addict. I mean, I think that there is a very real genetic, you know, component, and um, I think, I, I mean, I know that I have that, you know, and um, that, you know, coupled with maybe, you know, life experience, and also, I, you know, I, I, I am a very sensitive person, you know, and, and I've met a lot of other very sensitive people, and I think people that are really, really sensitive, you know, it's, the world is, is a pretty overwhelming place for them, so, um, it, I mean, it seems sort of inevitable to, to try to... Um, find something to, to make it easier to live in the world. Um, Could you have gotten I, tougher? I mean, gosh, you know, of course, a lot of girls say, oh, I'm so sensitive. I mean, it's like, gee, we got to be tough in this world. Do you do you regret that someone d- down the road didn't say, hey, Nick, you're sensitive, but you've got to face up to, even before any of these problems began? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't regret it because I don't know exactly how that would have happened, you know, but I, I do, I mean... 
I wish that, you know, for my little brother, you know, I have a little brother who's, who's 14, and, um, you know, I mean, I've, I'm able to have these kind of conversations with him, you know, and, and I think he is a sensitive person, you know, and, and you know, so I, I feel like, you know, I'm able to talk to him. I, I wish that, I mean, it would, be, it would have been great if there had been someone like me, you know, who could have talked to, talked to me when I was younger and just let me know that, you know, it was okay to be sensitive and it was okay to be to feel things, you know, and, and to not be this sort of typical macho, you know, male or, or whatever. I mean, I think that um, I certainly, you know, that I, I that's, yeah, I, I would have benefited from that for sure. Well, we we have uh, we have to go, but I have one last question. If you could make one recommendation to students who face symptoms that are similar to yours in terms of depression and anxiety, as well as self worth. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you know it is really cool to ask for help, you know, and and um, you know therapists and stuff sometimes they can really suck, you know, and they can not be good, but there are really good people out there, you know. So I feel like for me, I've just had to keep asking for help and trying, and and uh, you know, and eventually, you know, I found teachers in my life that have been able to help guide me, you know, but. Um, well, we think it's wonderful that that you that you're on this road to recovery, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing it. The book is very very powerful. Thank you so much. You Absolutely. Good. Thank you again. Okay. Uh, bye. Bye. This is, that was our guest, Nick Chef. His book Tweak is available online and in your local bookstores. If um, we are going to take a short break, and when we return, we will continue our conversation on addiction. How much does it affect us, or is it that other person's problem? If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 650-723-9010. If you have a question or a comment, send us an email at mothers at kzsu.stanford.edu. This is What Would Your Mother Say? I'm Susan Morris. From KZSU at Stanford University, this is What Would Your Mother Say? I'm your host, Susan Morris. If you're just joining us, our subject is addiction and its appeal with comments from the moms. Here in the KZSU studio with me tonight are Stanford students Sam, Lauren, Paul, and Tina, along with moms Susan Esterly and Jan Thompson. Well, you can never be too smug when it comes to addiction. It's a problem that many of us face today or will later in life, either through our own problems with drugs or alcohol or because of a loved one's struggle. When does the, or how does this problem begin and what do we do when we see it? We've already talked to Tina about the fact that you had a good friend who was was an addict. Is there anyone else at the table who has seen someone close up struggling with addiction? Oh, definitely. Um, I've had roommates get addicted. I've had girlfriends get addicted. So I've seen it pretty closely firsthand. How does it, are you aware of when it began or do you come in on the... (laughs) You don't really know the depth of their problem, how long it's been going on for, but when it reaches a critical point, when it's out of control that's when you know. When things start getting stolen, when people are high all the time, then it becomes glaringly obvious. They become really skinny and so on and so forth. This is at school here? This was at school and at home, yeah. Did you ever confront anyone with this? Um, We didn't necessarily confront him or we being her. Other roommates or friends. I mean, we knew about the problem. We talked to him about it. We didn't know how much of a problem it was, but 
ultimately it wasn't really our battle to fight. Like it was something that was going on with him. The only thing we could do was just kind of try and save ourselves. What do you mean by save ourselves? Were you tempted to get involved in any of this? No. No, I mean, and we, you know, didn't really know how to stage an intervention. We didn't think it was our real responsibility either because, you know, it's his life, not ours. I don't know if he's really addicted or he's just one of those people who can keep doing a lot of drugs. You know, William S. Burroughs, Hunter S. Thompson type. Yeah. Does anyone else at the table ever had been close up like this and had to confront anyone? Actually, I have a friend of mine also in uh, in school who who had a serious methamphetamine addiction, and uh, and that problem was compounded by the fact that she had diabetes, and so it turned into a very serious health problem very quickly. And it's so hard to watch someone you know go down that road from being someone you know very closely to someone you're almost complete strangers with, because you know the way they change, you know, and their personalities is very marked. What do you see beforehand, looking back, and those of you? also at the table have you seen people who are you think are just prone to this or are are real candidates for this paul do you have you ever looked at someone and said boy that guy's drinking too much um yeah i've definitely had that thought before um i mean i think even even to the people who have addictive personalities it's sort of it can be difficult to pick up on i mean uh we talked to nick and nick didn't even really know or like pigeonhole himself as an addictive person until too is too late. So I think it can be difficult to pick up on. Mm. What do you guys think? Mothers, do you agree with that? I mean, of course, if you're doing this kind of thing, presumably you're not too observant about, you know, um, into saying, oh, oh, this, because I've just had 10 drinks, that's a bad sign. Uh, well, you know, I think it's, I, for me, it's, I'm, uh, I'm sort of imagining myself back in the day when I was in uh, college here and you know, comparing to now. And, and, you know, I think back in the day when I was younger, uh, at least here at this university, there was a sort of don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. And there was tons of drugs and tons of alcohol. And, you know, people would pull out joints at, you know, section meetings and, and everyone. Oh, I'm, yeah. And it was, and, you know, everyone was underage and available. Drugs and alcohol were everywhere. And, you know, it was just very different. I think now it's different. And, and so, how is it different now? I mean, th- these guys are describing, you know, their contemporaries. I'm not sure. It, maybe they're not smoking pot in in um, work groups, but right. Well, I think there was a little bit more just sort of um, cultural support for experimentation and and drug and alcohol use when we were when us old ladies were in uh, our twenties than I think now. I think now. What do you think, Sam? Do you I think-, think there's just as much of a culture of experimentation. I think youth will always be youth. Um, if you go out anywhere, go to a rave, go to Burning Man, even go to a party here, you will see a lot of people who probably have ingested a lot of drugs at one point in their life. Yeah, Paul. Um, one thing that really struck me, uh, especially when we were talking to Nick, is that I really do think there's sort of a generational divide in that. Um, there's a lot of anti-drug advertising. There are a lot of other things going on. Like there's sort of a backlash against. I feel like sort of what our parents' generation did. And I mean, I've even read statistically that drug use peaked in about the late 70s and has been declining ever since. Well, well partly because the people who actually use a lot of drugs are now seeing what it does to you when you get to be in your 50s and your 60s, and it's not very pretty. So I think we're learning a lot about what this kind of lifestyle does to you in the long run. But, but isn't it true, though, that if you're in, into it, if you have an addictive personality, it doesn't matter, you know, how many hangovers there are, you know, you experience, you're going to do it. Like Nick was saying that once he got, you know, just, I guess, a little bit into a system, that was it. I mean, he had this 
Right, crazy. the switch was on. Yeah. Crystal meth's a little different from most drugs, though. It is? How? In what way? Well, it's just a lot more hardcore. That's a really, really hard drug. Probably the hardest of the hard drugs, so it makes oh. sense that it hits you that hard. How do you take quick. it? How do you ingest this drug? I don't know. I don't, haven't done much meth in my life. <laughs> Gosh, guys. <laughs> do, Probably do you know? snorting, smoking, snorting. or injecting. Oh, injecting. oh so it, I think you can inject it. Yes. You can smoke it. Okay, well, now I have a, a, a sort of a round, uh, round robin questions that I want to ask. Okay, uh, Lauren, what kind of drinking and drug use is harmless? Once a week drunk, drinking every night, as much pot as you want, only party time use of cocaine. You know what? I think that that comes down to an individual question. Like, I mean, like well, Sam yeah, was saying yeah, earlier, you you're going to have though? your William S. Burroughs. No, no, no. I want to know what you think. And, and in this in this regard, I think it's almost important to experiment to find out, you know, like how what is detrimental to yourself and what is you know an acceptable level of risk. I guess you're you're come on, Lauren. I want you to say oh, you, okay. Season? Let's go back. Uh, drinking every night. Do you think? Uh, does that go on? I mean, do you think that's okay? I think Har- it goes harmless. on. I think that's, that's pretty harmful. Harmful. I, I'm just going to go out and let me say that. Okay. One beer every night. One beer is that harmful? Well, no, I, I would. I would. I would classify that say, as drinking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. checking. <laughs> just having a dinner. drink. <laughs> okay, Tina. What do you think about uh, as for harmless? Uh, only party time use of cocaine. Uh, yeah, cocaine. I would have to say is a difficult one. Um, I mean, the thing is. I mean, if you're just going to throw out like a, a universalizing kind of theory, you're just going to say, well, you know, moderation, people are going to experiment. It's important not to cut off these doors. I, I know all experience. about experimentation, but do, but do you think... Is party time use of cocaine okay? <laughs> That's what we're trying to get at here. I feel like we're all going in circles right now. I apologize. That's, no, you're not going in circles. I'm just trying to pinpoint you. If you saw somebody tell, smoking coke, not during the week... I tell all my friends that I... I, I I would never do cocaine, and that I don't think they should either. Okay. Paul, what do you think about cocaine once a week? Uh, I I think it's bad news. (laughs) I've known people that have done it, and I think it's a slippery slope. The people that I've known that have done it, it hasn't turned out well. Okay. What about pot? You know, it's so harmless. I mean, God, people are picketing the Congress. Uh, We want pot legalized. Uh, medical marijuana, I mean, that whole route. Yep. Yeah, right, and California's outlawed that, so I don't think we're going in this direction. But do you think that um, that uh, that having drink, uh, drinking, smoking as much pot as you want is okay? I mean, I know some people who've really smoked themselves stupid, but, uh, yeah, use sparingly. It's called the glue that ties all the other drugs together <laughs> in some circles. So, yeah, it's definitely the softest of all the drugs out there. Smoke away. Okay. It's softer than alcohol, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that's a nice segue to my next question. S- students sometimes talk about the rite of passage when turning 21. That includes alcohol binging and certain kinds of drug use. Uh, it's estimated that more than four out of every five American 21-year-olds drink alcohol to celebrate the birthday milestone. Among those students who drank alcohol to celebrate their 21st birthday, 34% of the women, or excuse me, of the men, and 24% of the women reported consuming 21 drinks or more. Now, this would put them at uh, risk of a person being severely impaired and at risk for choking on their vomit or suffering serious injury. Okay, that's a huge... Don't end up like Jimmy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I want to ask, um, do you personally see any dangers in um, thinking about that this rite of passage is A-OK? 
Well, that's the way we have a birthday boy at the table. Laura right. turned 21 yesterday. So what did you do last yeah, night? What did you do last night? 21 drinks? No, well, I mean, no, the party's not till Saturday, <laughs> no. so I can't speak yet. But uh, okay. last night, Keep count. Count. I didn't wake up. I didn't wake up and feel good this morning. <laughs> Just curious, what's the name of this party that you're having? <laughs> oh, it's the the war on sobriety. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you think about um, about this rite of passage? being drunk for you know three weeks afterwards i don't think it's actually a rite of passage and i think some people tend to uh, exaggerate that they have 21 drinks on their birthday but i guess if you start early enough you can get it done i've seen it done Oh God! Imagine. It's it's bring, rough. Bring it's the allure of the danger, I think. <laughs> okay, now moms are always warning their kids: don't do drugs; they are bad for you. Okay, students, how does this kind of advice resonate, or is it just more of the mom talk? You know that apparently kids I know are very good at tuning out. What what could mothers say, or what could a parent say that would be more effective than "don't do it"? Um, read this book. <laughs> yeah, maybe read this book because we try and preach. It's like <laughs> well said, well said. I, so that's is that, a way with words. Is that the way you hear it? Yeah, how to do that again? Say. <laughs> oh, oh God, is that the way I sound? Oh boy, I'm yeah. in trouble. <laughs> it's like the Charlie Brown school teacher. <laughs> oh, so your parents can basically. Not too much. Is that right? Well, you know, to let them know, you know, you could end up being a prostitute and living on the street. I mean, no one really wants to end up like that. And it, it's hard to get kids to connect those two ends, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess that, you, you got to try to make them see that, I guess. I mean, moms, what have you ever said that worked? Well, your kids are, your daughter's young. Right. So, Jen, what did you tell your two daughters? I said, don't do it. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, I mean, that's. I mean, if we go back, when I look at you guys, I go, well, I was once there, and you know, someday you might be sitting where I am, and you'll have kids, and it's just. I think it's just kind of the way things are. Mm, all right. Okay. Well. All right. That's the way it is. Uh, the only thing my dad ever told me about drug use was my friend Jamie. He's stupid, and he did a lot of drugs. Well, that now, how effective was that? Because you probably, I mean, Sam, we don't like to be told we're stupid, right? Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that was behind us. Any back. of your choices? No, not at all. See, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Does it affect the choices you make? Uh-huh. And I think, as a parent, really, all you can do is hope that someone you can raise someone who is, you know, sensible enough to usually make the right choices. Oh. Or okay. also, you know, you try to create for them a life that isn't full of pain, and so they don't have to cover up with drugs. Well, we yeah, but that doesn't cover your biology. That doesn't cover the pure stuff. I don't know. I mean, that, I think that you know that back to kind of Nick and his pain theory of drug use. I only buy that this much, honestly, because I mean, it's I, it's hard for everyone to be a person, mm-hmm. and not everyone goes into you know plunges into the depths of addiction. Well, I have a little bit of problem about his quote being sensitive. Um, I, I say tough love here. Sensitive? What What does that... I should have said, what does that mean? You cry a lot or you, you know, you have your feelings hurt a lot. Um, I wonder, what when someone says they're sensitive, what do... A guy says he's sensitive. What does that mean to you, Paul? Uh... I mean, I guess I would imply sort of insecurity or just not being happy with himself, but I agree. I don't really see how that would connect to hardcore drug use and sort of the big picture. Well, I, I think that there are people who have um, insecurities and self-doubt and fear, and they feel 
they feel things, they internalize things that some people just don't. They just, you know, rolls off their backs. They just don't think about it anymore. And other people, it lives with them. They dwell on it. It just eats them from the inside. And I think there are people like that. And I think for those people, any kind of escape, whether, you know, of all kinds, is something they seek because the, the pain is just so much harder for them than it is for a lot of other people. And these people, they need help. And obviously drugs and alcohol and other stuff isn't going to take care of them for a long time unless it kills them. So they, they need assistance. They need counseling. They need good people to work with them. Go write a poem about it. Well, maybe, uh, maybe it was Sam's use of the, I mean, excuse me, it was Nick's use of the word sensitive that was misleading. Um, yeah. Well, we are. Um, we have a new segment on tonight's show, and it is the 60-second story about a mom. Tonight's storyteller is Sam Franco. Sam is a Stanford senior. And, nope, junior. I'm oh, sorry, junior. Sam is a Stanford junior. He's exceptional. And his story is called Pills. <laughs> A shrill Sam rings out through the house. This particular utterance of Sam has that definite mom ring to it. I put you into this world and I can take you right back out. I slowly trod towards certain doom in the kitchen. I'm thinking, keep your mouth shut until you're told what you're in trouble for. I know from experience. Don't apologize for things you would otherwise never suspect. She pulls out a bag of multicolored pilge. Large, maybe even horse tranquilizer size. Mom says, what are these? She is tear-struck. Is my son doing drugs? My throat chokes up, too. But then I look at the pills. Eureka! I take them from her and say, Mom, let me explain. I get a glass, fill it with water, and dump the pills into it. Within minutes, they become foam tyrannosaurs, stegosauri, and pterodactyls. Saved! Me and my mom fall on the floor, laughing. Both relieved. Sam and his mom continue to have laughs together. We are going to take a short break now. Stay tuned, and when we come back, a look at famous people and how the rest of us feel about them. I'm Susan Morris. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? From the studios of KZSU at Stanford University, this is What Would Your Mother Say? Hi, I'm Susan Morris. Here in the KZSU studio with me tonight are Stanford students Sam, Lauren, Paul, and Tina, along with Mom Susan Esterly and Jan Thompson. Some historians say that the USA got its first full-fledged celebrity in 1927 when Charles Lindbergh flew solo across the Atlantic. Imagine one celebrity and that was it. Today, new celebrities crop up on an hourly basis. People you'd never heard of before are suddenly written about 24-7 for weeks. It's got to have an impact on us. Well, I'm going to, assuming that all of us have been caught up in this culture of celebrityhood, I'm going to ask, Tina, who is your favorite celebrity? Um, I, I guess off the top of my head today, I thought about Angelina Jolie. All right. She's sort of an icon for, for like college-aged women. <laughs> okay, and Sam? Oh, Babe Ruth. <laughs> Sounds good. I guess we can have dead heroes or celebrities. <laughs> Jan, who's one of yours? Helen Mirren. Oh, the star of The Queen. Yes. Paul? Cary Grant. Why Cary Grant? 
I don't know. I kind of like that old style. <laughs> that sort of old retro thing. <laughs> Lauren? Well, I don't know. Against my better judgment, I'm going to say Jesus. Yeah, he's a celebrity big that, time. That, he's huge in Europe. This is, <laughs> that's a showstopper. Is it? Uh, <laughs> yes. Are, are people shocked? No, okay. I, no, no, I don't think shocked. Um, uh, well, yes, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> and it's God. Let's not forget right. God. Of course. Yes. Oh, all right. Uh, Susan, who's your, your, um, uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, there's probably a few, but I would say, you know, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yeah, Jimmy. Yeah, earlier, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Well, I want to talk about how, and guys, I hope you'll admit to this, to having a man crush on your celebrity and girls having, it's easier for us to say, oh, I have a crush on. Uh, Adrian Brody, he's so dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of not having a sexual crush on somebody, but. But to say, God, that guy is cool. I wish, or I like the way he looks. Have I have ever- a huge man crush on Barack Obama. I'm not going to lie. I mean, he's just such a great guy, and he really sort of embodies all these amazing things. And you're just like, wow, you know, how, how can I be like that? And who, now, anyone have a crush on, a girl crush, on Hillary Clinton? And what she's accomplished? Well, I... I, I, I don't think I have a, a girl crush on her, but I certainly admire her. But, but you know what I mean by yeah. by a girl crush. Who have you had one on? Um, you know, has there been a movie star who said, oh, I want to dress like that, or I want to um, stand like she does? Or? I remember in the one of the, the Terminator movies, I, I liked Linda Hamilton a lot. I have to remember say, her? that was a girl crush thing, and I thought, I want to be buff like her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. When I was young, I thought Jacqueline Kennedy was just breathtaking. Well, what about, since so. all the things that have come out about her afterwards, I guess at some point we all get disillusioned with our, our heroes. Well, I have to say, w- with her particularly, when you see how she handled the end of her life, it was just really quite impressive, and it kind of wiped away. Any of those other things that maybe they yeah, everybody's about. entitled to a couple of indiscretions. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Now, I some want- people choose bigger ones. By the way, her husband chose a lot of them. All right. That now, wasn't her. That was- I want you to to think about this. Let's imagine two people with equal talents, both aspiring to be hugely successful, i.e., famous, but only one succeeds in becoming famous. Why this one over the other? Do you have any? What would, and we've all seen this, you know, people start out, they both graduate from Stanford or Harvard or wherever, and they both look like stars, but one doesn't make it and the other one does. Can you, can you speculate as to why one might? What Some people just have it. What is it? I don't know what it is, but it's just you being should. right on point, being, I don't know, something different, something about your personality that is wholly unlike anything else that anybody has experienced before. I think that's part of it. And and have you you've seen it? I've seen it. Where? You can pick it out immediately. Uh-huh. I've seen it with people in the library. I've seen it in on the stage. I've seen it in a comedy club. I've seen it everywhere. Yeah. But I mean, Hollywood's got to be filled with people like that. New York and people trying to make it. I mean, why did some, like she, like Susan said, why do some get extremely famous and go down in the history books? And they some... spend a lot of time on their back. And when you, <laughs> when, when you see them Sometimes they report an aura around them that when you when the charisma is so strong that you're brought into it as you get closer to them, and that may be why some of them have the talent, but they don't have that that aura. It's all about I think, I think it's a it's a lot about luck too. You know, yeah. I mean, just wherever you are, the right place, right time. I think people are afraid to admit, you know, how much your life is dependent on you know 
just the the way the the, the cards fall. Well, but I think self confidence um, and a strong ego yeah. that that even when things aren't going perfectly, well, you just you know pick yourself up and keep going because you're convinced you are it. I think you. Some people make themselves to be the person they want to be, just out of sure determination and will. Well, I want to go now to this table. And who who will admit to wanting to be famous? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Sure. Okay. Paul? I love to be famous. But for what? I want to know for what? (laughs) Comedy or literature. Okay. Either or. Lauren? Yeah, anything, really, other than war crimes, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And and Tina? Uh, Perhaps a film director. All right. Now, have you, gosh, what does it mean to, what is status? What does it mean? Moms, can you tell them what it means since we've been there and back? What do you mean, I'm back? <laughs> I'm still waiting. I'm still, I haven't run out of time yet. Wait a second. Hold we, on. We are there. <laughs> okay. Tell me, though. Tell these kids. Um, because to me, there's there's a price. There's a, there's a you know, it takes a toll. There's a price. I hate huge, to. Huge. Huge well, toll. Well, I think for me, I mean, when I, get, when I think of, when I think of, well, what would be the, the, the positive side of, of fame? And that would be that you get to get well paid for something you love to do. And that right there is a goal that you can have whether you're famous or not. And I think that is a, a beautiful outcome if you can accomplish that. Girls, are you listening? <laughs> fame also gives you an audience, though. If you're famous when you talk, people will listen. And fame endows you with the ability to spread a message. But whether fame has a huge pressure because you're always expected to do not what you did before, but something better. And I think that's what's why so many famous people are miserable is because they're constantly trying to deliver as good as they did before and even better. And if they're not, then they won't be famous anymore. They won't be considered as good. And I, I think it's a real trap. I would hate, hate to be in a position where I was constantly having to deliver more than I delivered the last time. Really? That must you be think exhausting. so? Yeah. Oh, so you wouldn't be- want the Academy Award and then go do a bunch of B movies? No. Well, because everybody would go, oh yeah, well she used to be famous, but look what she's doing now. She's it's terrible. It's so really you wouldn't want to be Orson Welles then? <laughs> no. <laughs> Specifically, I wouldn't want to be Orson Welles. <laughs> but maybe right. he's dead. He's dead, but B, there were a lot of other things. Maybe you just have to quit while you're ahead. You know, like I think about someone like Joni Mitchell who I guess if I have to think of a girl crush now that I think about it, oh, I yeah. pick her. Um, you know, I think that she her career has really slowed down and as she, my guess is that as she's gotten older, she's if she puts something out, it's only because it's really worth it and good enough. And otherwise, she's just enjoying her life, and she accomplished a lot, and, you know, good for her. Mm-hmm. You don't she's think money trying. has anything to do with the later records? I, don't you think she's got enough? I mean, come on. She well, did beautifully for so many years. Well, I want to I want to switch it back to, to ourselves and um, about being famous. And how do you determine... Or how do we determine our own status? I mean, you say we want to be famous, and this is you know how the famous people are, but how do we decide where we stand in terms of our achievement and and being well known? Does this does that make sense? It's a good question. Good question. I think it's all a question of self confidence. If you present yourself as somebody successful, success will follow that success. Well, how do you present yourself as being successful? Um. All right. Well, there is this theory that people act in rooms like they're in a deck of cards. Some people, they're the lowest of the low. They'll play a two. People who are real, you know, proud and successful, they'll play the ace. And if you consistently play the personality of a jack or a queen or a king of the, or an ace, you're going to do better. 
Well, it's about not really submitting in conversation. A lot of it has to do with your body language too, how you maintain eye contact, whether you back away from it or you dare people to look at you. Well, now this brings me uh, to to a question I have. Uh, let's see. You see two people standing near you talking. How can you tell which one has more status, assuming that one does? You've said that you've started to list a couple of things. Yeah, and people are kind of like picking at themselves a little bit. Maybe if they're they don't present as big a body figure if they like slouch instead of standing upright. If also their their mechanisms, if they've got you know a cool like Fonzie like snap and swagger to their step. <laughs> Now, we usually call those people jerks, but maybe, maybe famous too. So do you think that in every dyad... One does not preclude the other. Yes. Do you think in every dyad there's a status differential? We've had a, a professor from uh, the business school talk about that. In every interaction, one person has more status than the other. And it behooves you to know, according to her... Where you are and, and, don't, and don't necessarily fight it because the person who has more status expects on some level to be to have that acknowledged but in a world where you're constantly worried about you know do, do i have status do they have more status than me it sounds like a terrible place to live at some point you have to stop caring about that no, no, but, but some people um, or say, just accept your own status well that that it's more subliminal that you don't sit there and say oh well i better not do this because that will mean i'll have less status it's just something you say oh that person is confident or has more you know uh, uh, charisma or more. Uh, I mean, you don't sit power. It just has this sort well, of primal ring to it. I mean, we might as well be you know comparing the size of our teeth <laughs> <laughs> and other body parts. Yeah, of course, <laughs> and other body parts. <laughs> well, okay, but but have you ever noticed this when you're when you're seeing two people across the room and you were told you had to meet the president of somebody of some company and and there are two guys over there or two women over there and you can tell as you approach which one is the president or uh, the big cheese besides he has on a five thousand dollar suit but <laughs> other than that it's usually the one yeah. doing the talking okay oh yes yes of course yes yeah. person with the yes man Okay, well, we are going to take a short break, and when we come up, we are going to have the hot seat. We have lots of questions for the panel tonight. I'm Susan Morris. This is What Would Your Mother Say? We'll be right back. From the studios of KZSU at Stanford University, this is What Would Your Mother Say? I'm Susan Morris. And here in the KZSU studio with me tonight are Stanford students Sam, Lauren, Paul, and Tina, along with moms Susan Esterly and Jan Thompson. Well, this is our hot seat segment where I go around and ask questions and I give every panel member five seconds to answer. I like to start with the uh, students and then have the moms compare, will compare the, uh, the what the moms have to say. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Paul. You're okay. on my left. Uh, I think cheating on exams is, uh, number one, never happens. Two, something my friends do when necessary. Three, something I prefer not to notice or talk about. Um, I would say three, I prefer not to notice or talk about. Um, I'm sure it goes on, um, but I really don't care to know. Okay. Uh, Lauren? Oh, the same question? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that sort of thing where I feel like, you know, uh, if someone's getting a better grade, I don't want to think that they're getting a better grade than me because they're cheating. Something that my friends do when necessary? 
Maybe, probably not. I'd rather not think about it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Binge drinking is, one, okay if done occasionally. Two, something that my friends do almost every weekend. Or something my parents know nothing about. Sam? Uh, I'd say two. Something my parents, my friends do almost every weekend. Yeah, probably. How when you when you describe what, describe binge for us? Not twenty one drinks, but no, no, no. But they get they get smashed. I mean, smashed. What's having that mean? trouble staying on the sidewalk? And how do they feel the next morning? <laughs> one of them gets right back up. Another one of them might not get up. For wow. a couple, you know, maybe you'll see him 7.15 to 7.30 p.m. Oh, oh wow. All right, PM. moms. Um, all right, I wanted you to ask um, or answer this. Binge drinking is okay if done occasionally. Uh, something my um, something my friends do almost every month. We'll go with month for parents. and uh, Or something that you parents know nothing about ever happening. Jan, what do you think? Um, Coming out, yeah, uh, three. I I really have to say that I've never. I, did I think it was happening? Maybe, but did I actually know? Ever see any evidence of it? No. Susan, uh, I would say my musician pals do a lot of binge drinking. Uh, I can't keep up with them. And uh, when I was a kid, my parents knew had no clue about what any of us did. No so for sure. You no lived clue. on campus, and so they didn't see yeah, you. Yeah, but any- even in high school, I mean, at junior high, I mean, anything. They just had no clue. You didn't tell your parents anything? <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Okay. Um, here's another question. But nope. do I think it's okay? Back to the first yeah. one. I just want everyone to know. I think that, you know, I'm not a big fan of looking at other people binge drink. It really is. I think it's disturbing. Yeah. And I just, it doesn't do anything well, me. would it's you say dangerous as what an observer, what? and I can't participate because, I, like I said, I can't keep up. Would you say anything? I've said stuff. And I what? mean, in my old age, yeah. When I was young, I would just, you know, disappear. I guess. If you, if you could keep up, though, would you do it? No, <laughs> yuck. Did now tell me what what if your friend said when you said something to them? Kind of like I can handle myself. Thank you very much. I mean, you know. In other words, mind your own, mind your own business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, moms here. Uh, Here are some questions just for you. Number one, my kids are clueless about what went on in college when I was there. True or false? I don't think they care. (laughs) Oh, all right. Susan? I haven't said a word. Okay. Um, True or false? I prefer not to talk about certain personal things with my kids, and I'm not talking about sex. Oh, true. True. You don't tell your kids everything. Okay. Just like they don't tell us everything. That's right. <laughs> okay. Now, this we've moved on. This is fill in the blank. My kids get embarrassed when I... Um, um, Susan? Um, uh, well, my daughter, who is 12, so I think just almost existing embarrasses her. <laughs> my existence, practically. <laughs> Have you ever danced? That, that. Oh, that kills her. Singing and dancing, <laughs> that kills her. Okay, guys, yeah. tell us why, <laughs> Tina. Tell us why kids get so agitated when they see their parents <laughs> be bopping around. It's like, don't do that, Mom. I don't have a problem with it, but my mom was a modern dancer. She danced with Martha Graham, so I guess it's oh. a different level. Well, yeah, so that would... Well, I almost dance as well as Martha Graham, but but Paul, what did you? And I've seen it, so I can say that. (laughs) Interpretive dance. I mean, especially if you're bebopping around, I feel like you should just shouldn't do that in public in general. But I don't know. I no dance fascist. (laughs) 
I think the most embarrassing for me is that my father, he loves to uh, waltz and ballroom dance. So when I was very young, he suddenly swept me off the floor in a wedding, at a wedding. And um, everyone there was just watching us dance together, and I was overwhelmed by the experience. Embarrassed. Absolutely embarrassed. You, you humiliated. Know, you, your face is getting red just talking about that. I can only imagine. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, moms and students, uh, I never talk to my parents about blank. Okay, who's willing to put out on the table what they don't talk to their parents about? Your dad is still here, alive, and it, that's right. Do you ever ninety-four years old? Ninety-four years old. It, <laughs> wow. Yeah, Susan, you have good genes. Is there something you don't talk to your parents about? Almost anything that's real close to home. Oh, all right. I mean, you know, inside. Okay, what happens when you do? I just care. I just choose not to. I need that. You know, space. Yeah. All right. Any guys? Are you in the same place? I'm with you there on that. Plus, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> and the weather. <laughs> and what we're having for dinner. I mean, you realize you just don't. Dinner, don't... weather, and professional sports. Yeah, let's go <laughs> with those. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we talk about. Okay. Lauren, we know your mom is probably listening, but tell us what you never talked to her about. I never talked to my mother about romantic relationships because she bothers me continually when I tell her. So it's kind of a game that I have. How long can I not tell my mother about the girl I'm dating? And she'll, she'll find out through a variety of different ways, and she'll always be very upset when she finds out that she doesn't know anything but uh it, it's it's a fun game i like playing it <laughs> well how do you feel about poor lauren's mom not <laughs> that's the advantage uh, of having daughters they they eventually do tell you more than uh than you want tina what do you not talk to your parents about um i guess i would just say that i don't like to talk to my parents too much actually about my friends lives my mother love just loves to talk about people and i just realized that it was a mistake to say too much just about other people she immediately would just make judgments about things they'd done and i, I didn't think that was fair to others that's that's interesting so did you know that she's making judgments about them yeah she'll almost like give me a psychological critique in response mm-hmm. oh and she'll oh give us an example um, <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell her that perhaps a friend was upset about something and then she'll immediately ask if, if something's been going on in their household, um, if, if something's been going on with their parents, if, if... But she doesn't know these people, so it's that she's not going to spread the gossip or anything. Uh, no, but I guess she feels like it's part of my life, so it's something that needs to be... That needs to be brought up a lot. Do you ever feel, moms, that that we need this information because it gives us something to talk to our kids about? And it gives us a fuller picture of their lives, and you know we're always interested in you know what they're doing and who they're doing it with and what's important to them, and so it's um it's a way you know we're filling in the detail so that we still feel like we're part of your lives because as your kids get older. You know, they have their own lives, and your parents are left with a bit of a hole where you know, a child used to be all the time. And so we're trying to figure out how to backfill that. You guys listening? To, did you hear that? Yeah, that makes sense. It does make sense. I find that, like, you know, because when I think about when I say to that, you know, I don't share a lot of personal stuff with my parents. I find that if I sort of do have experiences with them, that's incredibly, in, that, there's a lot of intimacy in that. And so I'm kind of trying to use that as my guide for with my daughter because... You know, I don't want to pry, but I do. I think if we share experiences and just the chit chat that happens through that, it kind of helps bridge that gap. You That's mean right. you mean going but, horseback riding? Or yeah, going or something? going for a hike, or let's go to a show, or let's you know go paddle boating, or you know just doing stuff together. Mm-hmm. 
so that gives you another frame of reference of things to talk about with them and yeah okay. that makes good sense well I want to I want to bring this up of points of discussion about getting along with parents and I want to um, throw out a problem that kids students sometimes have with with their parents and if we can have a quick round table discussion or throw out some ideas as, as to what to do about it the parents uh, don't like your boyfriend or your girlfriend uh, what can you what do you do when that happens and moms we can give some advice right what do you do just don't bring her over go there that sounds like no nonsense kind of thing. Do you uh, ever care what your parents have to say about about a sweetheart? Don't you love that old fashioned word? <laughs> Not um, usually. In about fact. this trollop, this tramp. Your <laughs> Susan. No, no. Watch I'm, yourself. No, no, no. But, she just knows my style of woman. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, I've noticed that, like, you know, if if if, uh, if a girl's parents like you too much, it sort of hurts her relationship. She's like, well, my parents like you, so what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, poor yeah. parents. I, we, I, <laughs> we, we get the short end of the stick, I, I think, sometimes. Well, we that's it for this week. I want to thank my panel. We had lots of students for this week, which is a lot. Uh, we had... Uh, Paul and Sam, thank you for your story, Sam. I really loved it. Thank you. And Lauren and our new teammate, Tina, and Jan Thompson and Susan Esterly. Now, before we go, I want to go around the table quickly and get your momism for the week. Sam. Don't eat that. It'll all be all right. Is she a nice girl? Don't dare you shave your legs. Get plenty of sleep. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Fantastic. Thanks so much. For the record, the opinions you hear on What Would Your Mother Say don't represent those of KZSU or Stanford University. If you'd like to be on the panel, order a CD of tonight's show, or write a story about your mom, go to our website, whatwouldyourmothersay.com, and click on the welcome page. Next week, the Democratic primary in Pennsylvania, an update on where the voters stand. Our guest is political strategist Heather Arnay. I'd like to thank Leela Haber as well as KZSU's chief engineer, Mark Lawrence, and our producer, Susanna Montez. And thank you for listening to us. We appreciate your tuning in every week, and we'll see you next week, same time, same station. I'm Susan Morris, and remember, call your mom.